I'm Carrie Thompson, and you're listening to Playback, the only podcast that celebrates the serendipity of the NPR archives. Just snooping around, we discover all sorts of great stuff, like Terry Gross chatting with Public Radio's very own Garrison Keillor. Solitary confinement was my idea of fun. It was a chance to sit down and talk to myself, and that's what naturally led me into radio. Wow, there are no shortages of bad ideas to pursue a career in radio. And on this month's playback, NPR's Lynn Neary talks to Robert Easton, a very energetic dialect coach. When I did a film, I could, if I was an Appalachian Southern, I could say, ma'am, <laughs> you're just as purty as a bucket full of hog livers. <laughs> well, gee, that's real nice of you to say. We start off with a story this month about why baby boomers of the 80s should quit reliving the 60s. Here's NPR's Brian Naylor. Julie Phillips doesn't remember where she was 25 years ago today, and for good reason, she just turned 24. But she is very tired of hearing the fond and frequent recollections of her immediate elders, the baby boomers. Yeah, you feel like they've kind of cornered the market on youth, and they're not really going to let you have a good time. They're not going to admit that anybody besides them has ever had or is ever going to have a good time. Do you think it's ever going to end? All of this infatuation with, with, with what happened uh, in the 60s? Um, you know, when everybody dies, I guess. I don't know. I think people are getting tired of it to some extent now. I think you hear about, you know, they finished doing the, the Summer of Love. They, they rehashed that, and then they rehashed 1968. And, you know, maybe after they're done with, like, the 20th anniversary of Altamont, they'll, like, stop. What did the 60s mean to you? You were born midway through the uh, the decade. It always sounded like, you know, it would have been a good time if I'd been there, but I don't really, you know, I have only kind of the vaguest memories. I guess my mother says that Sgt. Pepper was my favorite album when I was about three years old, and I used to, like, I'd have these, these birthday parties where I would play Age of Aquarius and do musical chairs to Age of Aquarius, but... Do you think that uh, you were shaped maybe by the 70s, as, as the baby boomers were shaped by the 60s? Um, I'd say the 70s or the early 80s. I was kind of midway through high school. And, and I guess I think of myself more as an 80s person. You know, I still think of myself as an 80s kind of gal, which is sort of weird considering we are almost in the 90s now. Our 25 Years Ago journey continues this month with a discussion on the future of the book circa 1989. Here's Terry Gross. The packaging of information has taken quantum leaps during the past century. If you're wondering about what's to come, language commentator Jeffrey Nunberg says the book is here to stay and it's in good company. Around this time every year, the citizens of Farmington, Maine, get together to celebrate the memory of Chester Greenwood. In 1873, Greenwood came up with the ingenious idea of putting a piece of woolen cloth on either end of a bent wire and thereby producing the first pair of earmuffs. 
It's such an obvious idea that you wonder why no one had thought of it centuries before. It seems a design that was born perfect, like the paperclip, the toothpaste tube, and the ice cream cone. What brings all this to mind is the announcement that archaeologists working at a site in Egypt have discovered what may be the earliest known book, a copy of the Book of Psalms that dates from the 4th century A.D. We have scrolls much older than that, but the Egyptian find is the earliest text that's made of choirs, that is, sets of sheets of parchment or paper that are folded into quarters, then sewn together and bound between covers. Bookmaking has been refined and automated since then, but that basic design hasn't changed in 1600 years. We don't know the identity of the Egyptian Chester Greenwood who dreamed up this scheme, but the breakthrough was at least as impressive as the earmuff. Compared to a scroll, the book is an enormous improvement as a device for packaging a text. It's easy to store and carry around. You can open it wherever you like and flip back and forth between sections. I have this mental picture of the vast ancient library of Alexandria with signs on all the walls reminding patrons to please rewind their scrolls when they were finished using them, like in a video rental outlet. But books do have their limitations. They take up room and they wear out. They have to be physically replaced when the information they carry gets out of date. And finally, they impose a linear organization on their contents. If the book in question is an Agatha Christie, of course, we wouldn't have it any other way. But if it's a service manual or a travel guide, the linearity can be a hindrance, which requires clumsy cross-referencing. Not surprisingly, high-tech visionaries have already begun to foresee the replacement of the book by other technologies. They ask us to imagine a day when all of the information in all of the books in the Library of Congress will be stored in digital form on computers. Now imagine a computer system called a navigator, which enables you to sit at a terminal and wander freely through this universal library along paths of free association. So, say you're reading one of Shakespeare's histories. On a whim, you can click on a button to find out about the War of the Roses, or about the state of the British economy in the 16th century. And now, imagine this navigator system running on a small portable computer that taps into the larger network by radio and you have what some people have called the Dyna book, the only physical book you'll ever have to own. A lot of this technology is available already, and many people seem to take the eventual disappearance of the book for granted. And it's quite likely that electronic media will very shortly take over the functions of books and periodicals as a way of distributing technical and reference information. But the future of the book is secure. It's easy to forget how much of the experience of reading is tied up in the physical encounter with paper and ink, with the object that we carry home, take to bed with us, and feverishly turn the last page of at two in the morning. It's certainly hard to imagine anyone writing a rubiot to the sensual pleasures of reading in the electronic age. A navigator underneath the bow, a side of fries, a Diet Coke, and wow. And now for an entertaining detour, here's NPR's Lynn Neary. Robert Easton is a man of many voices, his own. At last, he lost his lust. British. At last, he lost his lust. Southern. At last, he lost his lust. Just to name a few. Easton is an actor and a dialect coach. He's helped thousands of actors, from the very famous to the unknown, prepare for roles. He taught Melanie Griffith and Joan Cusack how to talk like New Yorkers for the film Working Girl. Both have been nominated for Academy Awards. Easton believes a childhood problem with stuttering helped him to develop a keen ear for nuances in other people's speech. And when he decided to go into acting, Easton realized he had a gift for dialects. 
As an actor, I had always specialized in dialect roles. And I had started out with, uh, you know, American regional dialects. I was raised in Texas. And uh, then I gradually expanded to Appalachian and uh, aristocratic lowland southern. So when I did a film, I could, if I was... At Appalachian Southern, I could say, ma'am, <laughs> you're just as purty as a bucket full of hog livers. <laughs> so then I expanded and I learned uh, various European dialects. And then other actors started asking me, could I coach them? So uh, then I studied phonetics at University College in London. And I'm constantly doing research. I travel all over the world on film locations. And uh, so I listened to the people. I was on a film in India where I was coaching Gregory Peck. He was the uh, only American in an all-British cast, mm -hmm. and I had to teach him to be an upper-class upper English army officer, you say. Mm -hmm. But we were, we were filming there in India, so all the time I was surrounded by these people <laughs> who were, you know, from all different parts of India, and they were telling me all sorts of things. So that's how I uh, do my research. Huh. How do you begin to teach someone uh, a dialect? What, what, what's your technique? It uh, varies enormously with the client. Some people are extremely ear-minded. They have almost, uh, you know, tape recorder fidelity. And uh, so Jane Fonda is one of those. I coached her for the one that she won the Emmy for called The Dollmaker. And uh, so I'd, I'd talk to her, I'd do that, uh, you know, Appalachian-type dialect. And why, 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 do you, why do you talk like that? And uh -huh. this fella, you know, uh, he lives way far up there in the mountains, and he, he always does like that. And you remember the, the story, she carved them, them things out of wood uh -huh. and all. She had such a good ear that I worked with her in what's called pre-production. We just worked ahead of time. And I did, I believe, I think it was three two-hour sessions with her, and she had it to perfection wow. because she picked it up by ear. So some people just have a real gift for it then. Yes, they do. Now, I have other clients who are extremely eye-minded, uh, Charlton Heston uh, being an example. And so I re-spell his dialect for him, and he gets the visual lock on it, and so he can read it right off the electronic teleprompter huh. and make it sound like it's thoughts and feelings that he's improvising in the moment. That's interesting. So you'll take a word and you'll spell it out phonet and you'll spell it out the way that it's supposed to sound. That's right. Huh. Can you teach anybody? Uh, well, it's at, uh, yeah, just about anybody. That <laughs> depends on, you know, what sort of ear they have, how highly they are motivated. Can you teach me something? What would you like to learn? Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, well, what, what's a good, easy accent to learn? Maybe you can teach me. Uh, would you Would you like to learn a little bit of Irish? Oh, Irish is wonderful. Ah, that you, I, oh, that sort of comes Irish. naturally to me, you know. <laughs> well, I, I just had a, a psychic feeling that it was. <laughs> and uh, I can hear that little sparkle in the voice. Oh, that's, is that it? <laughs> the sparkle in the voice, that's it. Irish eyes are smiling. <laughs> and that's the truth of it. Maybe uh, we should go see, to... See, in Ireland, you have different uh, regional dialects as well. Uh -huh. For example, if we were to take a simple phrase like Sergeant Murphy from Cork prayed to the Virgin, if we did that in the Dublin dialect, it would have what are called retroflex stars, which means take your tongue tip and curl it back, go, or, or, or. Or, or, right. or. Sergeant, Sergeant Murphy. 
Sergeant Murphy. Murphy from Cork. <laughs> Pray to the Virgin. Sergeant what? Murphy from Cork. Cork. Pray to the Virgin. Pray to the Virgin. That's it. That's it. <laughs> but if we went out to Cork, they have a different kind of an R. It's what's called a lingual R. Uh-huh. It's more like we associate with a Scottish R. It's R, R. So they would say, Sergeant Murphy from Cork. Pray to the Virgin. Sergeant Murphy from Cork. Pray, Pray to the to Virgin. The virgin. <laughs> and so you get out into Kerry and they'll talk about things like uh, stiff. Ah, the man was quite stiff with the cows. <laughs> That's my home territory, too. Is so it? I should be able to say that. Ah, well. Let's say it again. All right. Well, I, I, hit, I hit the man with me fist. I hit the man with me fist. Fished. Fished. Yeah. See, in the areas that are influenced by the Gaelic, the S before T becomes an SH. Uh-huh. And, uh... So that said, the first, the first time. You know, it's interesting as I hear you talking about um, the details of different kinds of dialects. It's a lot of information you have stored up there uh, about languages of a specific area. Oh of, yes, of uh, different countries. Oh yeah, well, I tape people all the time, and when I travel, I make notes. I have an enormous reference library, so I can be very, very specific. And I taught Al Pacino his Cuban for Scarface. And I must say I was very pleased because I got a nice feedback from Cuban friends that they were, uh, you know, very, very pleased with what he did, that it was authentic. And that's what, see, in the old days in American vaudeville, there used to be stereotypical dialects that uh, people would do and then actors would imitate actors, imitating actors, Mm -hmm. imitating actors, and you'd get all these conventions which began to become so abstracted away from the reality that uh, they began to have an existence only as theatrical dialects rather than from, from real people. There used to be a time when moviegoers would go, and if somebody did a really bad cockney, if uh, an American actor would do, Ah, why don't know? I don't think it's nice to go around hitting old ladies over the head. They would buy that as Cockney Mm -hmm. because that was one of those actors' conventions. But that bears no resemblance to what real Cockney is like. Real Cockney is, aye, do you know what a a British working man thinks? I mean, he's he's got his problems, right? I mean, he's like that. You really like slipping into a dialogue, I can tell. (laughs) Well, yes, well, to tell you the truth, that is, uh, for me, that is a lot of fun. When I have to teach someone to be from Scandinavia, I really enjoy that. There's no two ways about that. Actor and dialect coach Robert Easton. Okay, now it's time for one of the most legendary Norwegians to make it big in public radio. He stopped by to chat with Terry Gross. In 1987, Garrison Keillor stopped delivering his weekly reports from the fictional town of Lake Wobegon. It was a year of big changes for Keillor. He left his public radio program, A Prairie Home Companion, which he hosted for 13 years. He married Ulla Skarvet, a Danish woman who he hadn't seen since she was an exchange student in his high school. After their marriage, they spent the summer in Copenhagen and then moved to New York. It was the first year Keillor ever lived outside of Minnesota. 
The self-described shy person has had to learn how to be famous. He spent a week on the cover of Time magazine, surely the only public radio host with that distinction, and he's had three bestsellers. His latest, Leaving Home, just out in paperback, is a collection of Lake Wobegon stories. His forthcoming collection, We Are Still Married, will be published in April. We invited Garrison Keillor to the NPR Bureau in New York to read from his forthcoming book and to tell us what his life has been like since leaving a Prairie Home Companion. I wanted to know, as one radio person to another, what it was like to actually leave the show after so long. It's a jolt. It's um, like walking off a, walking off a small cliff. It's uh, hard on your lower back. <laughs> it, uh, it's, um, it's a great surprise. Do you miss the adrenaline and do you miss the deadlines? I was kind of running out of adrenaline. That was my problem. And uh, I wasn't getting uh, nervous enough. So I took a layoff. And uh, now I do the occasional show in a theater and walk out on a stage. And uh, and I'm pleased to report that uh, I can get scared with the best of them. <laughs> I get so scared, I forget the second verse of Hello, Love, which uh, I always used to think was sort of engraven... <laughs> Somewhere in the, sort of in the base of my brain. Did you ever have a terrible moment of second thoughts after you left doing the show regularly and say to yourself, oh my God, what have I done? Oh, I had a hundred of them. I had a hundred of them. I went, uh, I went over to Denmark pretty um, smartly right after the end of that thing. We just bought an apartment in um, a section of Copenhagen and uh, there wasn't a stick of furniture in it. And um, I was going to language class, and uh, so I went from um, all of these um, encomiums and and um, farewells and uh, and uh, all of this um, affection of of the audience um, over to sitting in a bare room in Copenhagen, and then going down to a bare classroom and uh, talking about knives and forks and. Uh, you know, oh, where, this is a language study? Where is my suitcase? Mm-hmm. Uh, where is the bathroom? So it was, a, it was a long fall there, but it's exciting. You know, it's good for you. It sure gets your attention, and, uh, and I recommend it. Recommend what, a big change? I do. I really do. I think that, uh, I think that uh, somewhere in there around the middle of your 40s or somewhere a person uh, person needs to go up in a plane and jump out of it or do something mm-hmm. dramatic well you know um when you're doing something on a regular basis like you had been doing with prairie home companion i think it's easy to convince yourself about all the great things you'd be doing if you gave it up if you changed your life on all the things you'd be doing if you just had a little bit more time in your case, I'm sure, writing <laughs> mm-hmm. figured into that agenda. Once you had the time, mm-hmm. were you able to do all the things that you wanted to, or did they become more difficult than you expected? They always were difficult. I didn't, I didn't imagine that uh, writing a novel would become easier because I had more time to sit and look at blank paper. Um, but I still wanted to do it and am doing it and uh, intend uh, to finish it and... In the meantime, I've been fooling around doing some writing for The New Yorker and doing some shows and this, that, and the other thing. If you could read an excerpt of My Life in Prison, which has already been in print, and which magazine was it, Garrison? 
I was in that uh, Atlantic. Uh, do they still call it the Atlantic Monthly? Or? I, I'm never sure. I just call it the Atlantic myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think monthly might be vestigial at this point. I see. Um, but I think this is a really funny piece, and uh, the part you're going to read really comments about uh, being the center of all the publicity. I don't know. I'm not sure if this is funny or not. I never am clear on that. Tell me if I come to a funny part. Okay. <laughs> Ever since the day I first walked out on stage and blinked and cleared my throat, people have written some terrible things about me that aren't true, but it doesn't matter. I've done a lot of terrible things in secret that nobody wrote about, so it all evens out. My sister used to say terrible, untrue things about me to my parents, but it didn't matter because they didn't believe in innocence anyway. When they caught us pounding on each other, they just grabbed the nearest one and sent him up to his room. And if I said she hit me first, the truth, it made no difference. I still got punished to make up for the times they probably had made a mistake in my favor. Their punishment backfired in my case. I loved to be sent up to my room. My books were there, my tablets, my plastic soldiers. It was good up there. If they wanted to punish me, they should have sent me out to play with other children. Solitary confinement was my idea of fun. It was a chance to sit down and talk to myself, and that's what naturally led me into radio, which led to so much more, including those terrible, untrue things. This is the sort of thing I mean, which happens often. A reporter calls up and says how much he's always liked my work. Could he take me to lunch? So he does, something expensive like walleye sushi, and he asks me ten questions about life and love and laughter, and then he turns on his tiny tape recorder and asks, what's the worst thing your folks ever did to you? I tell him that sometimes they punished me for nothing, and he writes his story, Rich Writer, Bitter Toward Mom, 74. I understand he's only doing his job. There's nothing personal about the piece. Journalism is a moral art. It draws pictures in bold strokes. The newspaper columnist back in St. Paul who combed the town for children whom I had disappointed is a deeply moral writer. The man who wrote, Timmy lies in pain while Hero laps up New York glitz and glamour. A very sick little boy lies on a broken bed in a dank basement apartment on the south side, waiting for hours for the mailman. A few minutes after one o'clock, when he hears the rustle of mail in the fetid hallway, he climbs painfully from the soiled sheets and limps to the door and stops with his little hand on the cold knob and says an hour, Father, but so far it hasn't been answered. Every day Timmy whispers Garrison Keeler's name and looks for an envelope containing the autographed photo he requested from the former Prairie Home Companion host way back in March 1987. Doctors say that such a signed photo could give Timmy the spark of hope he needs in order to live. His Aunt Brenda says if only Garrison knew how much it means to us, surely as a Christian he would spare 30 seconds to autograph a picture. But would he? Keeler, who sleeps all day and spends his nights cavorting with the glitterati and the niteries of Sodom, is said to be quite satisfied with his new famous friends and his new life of luxury and excess. I read that story and suddenly realize why PR people send out gallons of Johnny Walker at Christmas and serve prime rib sandwiches and hospitality suites in hotels. Journalists are hungry people. The PR guy, courtly, English, 
walks up to the sleaziest writer in the room and lays an arm across his dandruffy shoulders and murmurs, you know who you remind me of? Edward R. Murrow. I mean it. You've got that same intensity, that kind of grace, like what Yeats wrote about. How does that line go? Uh, Nor law, nor duty, bade me fight, nor public men, nor cheering crowds, a lonely impulse of delight drove to this tumult in the clouds. Can I get you a scotch? The reporter, a man with watery eyes and 40 pounds of old cheeseburgers around his waist, blushes and stares down at his hush puppies, and for the next 20 years you will have no problem with him at all. He will go chase the university president, tax money lavished on executive suite while the dying lie in dim alcoves at U Hospital, or snipe at the archbishop, prelate fails to attend cripple's dinner for third year in row, or haul off and slug the mayor, politician denies persistent rumors of pet molesting. And he will not go writing these stories full of everybody who has a grudge against you. He'll write, Everyone in this town knows Garrison Keeler is a wonderful entertainer and devoted father, but I wonder how many of us are aware of those dozens of little unsung deeds he does for the poor and unfortunate every week. A PR guy would sing some of those deeds in a nice low voice so that a columnist could hear them. I don't have a PR guy, but once I did hire someone named Milo to attend rehearsals and yell, All right, every time I sang a song. I was sensitive about my voice and needed affirmation in order to do my best. He sat among the band, and in that awkward silence after a song when the musicians reached for a smoke, Milo yelled, All right, far out, whoo, you sang that one all right. Milo is quoted in my biography as saying that I was selfish. That's a sad story. (laughs) Hard life. I should say that the story that you just read from is called My Life in Prison, and uh, it will be included in your forthcoming collection, which is called We Are Still Married, and that's scheduled for publication in April. In in the monologues that you've done over the years, you've really told us all a lot about yourself, although the names have been changed. Um, But in the last few years, you've had to do so many interviews uh, that you've really had to, I'm sure, Divide, draw, draw some kind of line between what's public and what's personal in your life. And I, I've been wondering if that's a hard line to draw and where you've decided to draw it. Well, my wife says that I, that I, don't, uh, I don't draw it as, uh, as uh, tightly as I, as I should. And uh, she and I talk about it at, uh, at uh, great length. Um, it's an it's an interesting question. A writer um, a writer does use uh, you know things that things that happen to us, um, and uh, I don't I don't know of any other way to uh, to write about uh, these 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 characters other than to carry over my own experiences into their into their lives. So it's a it's a it's a it's a predicament. Um, on the other hand, I I have a family and I have a, a mother and father and uh, brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles who uh, I don't care to uh, 
embarrass, which I which I certainly have in 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 writing like Wobegon Days, for example, which uh, in which I wrote a great deal in the first person, and I wrote about fictional aunts and uncles and uh, and a mother and father who uh, I considered fictional in the book, but uh, you know people people oftentimes read that as uh, as a factual autobiography. Well, I wish you the best, and um, thank you very much for talking with us. Thanks, Terry. Well, come along, boys, and have a glass of cider. I'll tell you what it's like to be a freelance writer. Come a tie, yippee, 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 come a tie, yippee, semicolon. Well, writing is easy and the money is great, but it's hard to know how to punctuate. Come a tie, comma, yippee, quote, yippee, quote. Comma tie, parenthesis, yippee, parenthesis. Well, I've written great stuff. Editors reject brilliant work, but it was incorrect. Comma tie, comma dash, yippee, yippee, dash, yippee tie, comma, yippee, period. I just want to say thank you for joining us for this month's playback. Special thanks go out to Ms. Kat Arsimant for her tireless researching and dubbing and her general good-naturedness. I'm Carrie Thompson, and you're listening to Playback. <laughs>